the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Danny Cannell. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at YouTube.com slash Cover 3 and everywhere you get your podcasts on demand. Thanks for hanging out. Smash that subscribe. Smash the like. Come go- join us in the chat, a.k.a. Stay. the Cover 3 tailgate. Rocking and rolling. And don't worry, tailgate. I see y'all in the chat early. This is not just going to be a couple big game breakdowns because there are too many big games. We are going to be looking at the matchups to watch X-Factors, key storylines, and more for Oregon-Washington. For USC Notre Dame, for UNC Miami, for UCLA Oregon State, for Tennessee Texas A&M, and then you know if there's a few listener requests out there, and we got the time, we'll get to that as well. Plus, Mark Stoops has some comments on NIL. Let's spin it forward. See if there's any credence to what he's got. Travis Hunter is practicing again at Colorado ahead of a big game against Stanford. What is TCU going to do at the quarterback position for the next couple of weeks? Yikes. But I want to ask, you know, since we're here in that midweek portion, um, any takeaways from Tuesday night's results? We saw Liberty go on the road and get a win at Jacksonville State. Middle Tennessee tried so badly to um, (laughs) pee down its legs and did not. Congratulations to the second-half Raiders with the win against Louisiana Tech. And then Coastal Carolina, which Boone had been just a house of horrors for the Chanticleers. They go and get themselves a field goal as time expires to win at the Rock. Congrats to Tim Beck and the gang. Any takeaways from uh, from Tuesday night's action? I mean, it was awesome. It was that a good night of football. Like, like three mm-hmm. competitive football games on a Tuesday night was, was awesome. I know it kicks off that, what, 47 days straight of football. Or not kicks off, but continues, obviously, from last week. Uh, three, three quick takeaways. 
One, yeah, I think we really should be worried about App's defense. Mm -hmm. Two, this looked like the USF offense run by Travis Trickett at Coastal uh, or at USF last year. Like that's what Coastal's running. He's their OC now. This looked like the USF offense that we were cashing those team total overs last year with down the stretch when they were still really banged up and scoring points. You know, drawing the defense's eyes with, with the horizontal stuff hitting the vertical shots. McCall looked good. Kind of beefed up McCall, blocking two guys uh, there on the final was was pretty cool. Uh, not quite as bad of game manager Tim Beck this week, so improvement there is uh, is is better, I think. Quick on Liberty, nobody had really been able to expose Jack State's safeties except for middle, and middle just kept, kept turning the ball over. But they did throw for like 500. So when Liberty threw, that's where they went. Like all the deep shots for the most part were between the hashes. I, I think Jack's safeties are exploitable, not by anybody else in that league because really nobody can throw except them in Western, maybe. And a nice job of the Liberty defense to not like allow freebies mm -hmm. to Jack State. Like the tempo, they never got like the wide open 80 yard bust. They, they made Jack State earn it all and they just couldn't do it. My biggest takeaway is how many more weeknight games does App State have this year? Well, once you get on the Tuesday Wednesday cycle, it's tough. Like it, you're yeah, going to have to stay off. there uh, until you get cycled. Until your off week really allows you to get cycled back onto Saturdays. Yeah, and that's that's great news for all of us because when G five teams are playing on weeknights, player props are available, and you can just bet the over on rushing yardage for every team that App State is playing against this year. So that's what I did last night with Coastal. Won a couple props, rushing props, and I'm going to keep doing that every week for the rest of the season. Sick. Liberty, I was doing their game last Thursday night, and I was watching the game last night, and I was like, I kind of for a second, I thought it was Friday night because I usually do Friday nights. I was like, man, how many days of rest is this? They're playing again. Uh, but they did get the – I mean, so it was, I guess it was five days, which is still tight. It's a lot oh, sure. to ask these players to do. <laughs> I think Liberty's going to run the table. I think they're going to be undefeated. They are not even going to come close to sniffing the playoffs, which, you know, group of five team runs the table. You get in that conversation – I don't even, they're not going to be the highest ranked group of five either because the schedule just, their non con was way too easy. It's still a great year for Jamie Chadwell. Like, and I think this is probably by design. Let's, let's get ourselves some positive momentum going into the future. Next year, it doesn't look great either. But Caden Salter's a baller too. He can make some plays. He does it all for him. I mean, he, that system, very quarterback friendly. If you've got a guy who can run and throw, like he's, he's playing pretty well. The rest yeah. of that league is kind of screwed. Like, yeah. If you have the best coach and also are the only program with actual money, a lot of resources, like it's mm -hmm. it's night night. I, like you, you had better find a way to upset Liberty this year because like I don't think that barring some kind of crazy injury run, I would expect that Jamie Chadwell wins that league every single year that he's there. So two Tuesdays, um, Liberty is on the road in Bowling Green to play Western. That's the one. And look, yeah. with no divisions in Conference USA this year, maybe we're going to end up seeing that game twice is because they could end up in the championship game. To Danny's point, 6-0 um, and overall, 4-0 and in conference play. Uh, Liberty, definitely the class of the Cayusa uh, so far through the first half of the season. We got a pair of games coming up on Wednesday night. So if uh, And I'm, I'm going to try to do a better job of remembering on Monday – so that we can give some picks out for Tuesday night games. So for Wednesday night's action, UTEP on the road at FIU, Sam Houston at New Mexico State. Uh, any picks that you would uh, that you're you're eyeing or sniffing out heading into Wednesday? 
Uh, my Twitter tip tonight is the under in UTEP FIU. I would also take FIU on the money line if there's still a dog at home. I, uh, do you want to bet UTEP as a road favorite? You go right ahead. As for the other game, I, I don't really have any great feels on it. If, if you could find a Diego Pavia interception prop, take the over. <laughs> can we go? Can we do money line sprinkles on, on locks? Yeah, I'm telling you, Sam Houston State, they're getting close. Or they're not one state. Sorry. Just Sam Houston. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, <laughs> they're getting really? close. Yeah, they're, they're dropping close. the state. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I was on CBS Sports Network using that, and they were like, "Hey, I was like, we're just Sam Houston now." Drop. Let's the bring state. back the states, man. Memphis State, right. Troy State, Sam Houston State. Just it sounds better. It yeah, does. let's also go Florida Tech for UCF. You know, yeah. let's. Go to <laughs> uh, so you got Sam Houston. You know, like think it, think it a little money line sprinkle there. Yeah, uh, they're getting close. They've been playing a lot better. I mean, they, they were they, sandbagging. Yeah, <laughs> the entire non-con. They were sandbagging. They come into conference play and they're a completely different team. Um, yeah, so that'll be on Wednesday night. Be sure to check all of that out. Uh, one of the big uh, sort of you know buzzy stories that has has trickled out um, all throughout college football and especially in the SEC was when on the Kentucky Coaches Show on Monday night, um, Mark Stoops got a question about his record against SEC competition, in particular, some of the best of the SEC competition. And Mark Stoops uh, came back and said that Georgia bought some pretty good players, quote, with NIL money and then encouraged Kentucky fans to step up their donation to keep pace. Kirby Smart got to respond to these comments on Tuesday. He said, no reaction, Smart said. It's much to do about nothing, really. Mark is trying to garner interest in money from his fan base for his collective. We're all trying to do the same in terms of getting money for our collective. Mark and I talked about NIL pregame, and we talked about it in our meetings. I'm not biting on that. And I liked this one uh, as well. This is actually from Georgia defensive lineman uh, Zion Logue. Uh, He said, in this day and age of NIL, everybody's sort of buying players or buying recruits. They're doing it. Other schools are doing it. It's about whether you can execute on Saturdays. It's not about money. It's about execution at the end of the day. That's that's an active player for the Georgia Bulldogs (laughs) saying, in this day of age, everybody's sort of buying players. So, I, but uh, you, you said you were, Turbocharged on this one. So let's let's dig into this. And by the way, if you have not listened to Tuesday's recruiting show, um, I really enjoyed like I'm I'm about midway through. You just got to the player breakdowns, but like the first half of the show, listening to Bud and Cooper and Andrew and Steve talk about some of this big picture stuff. You know, it just sort of introduced a lot of good thoughts. Like, for example, you know, everyone's talking about the photo shoots and the visits. Well, if we really are going NIL, why don't we make this more like an NFL draft interview? Like, let's actually get these guys on campus and not come with blow horns out of the elevator. Let's instead sit them down and let's see what they can, you know, talk about and, and make it a little bit more formal. So I would recommend um, listening to that. I really enjoyed uh, hearing that personnel side, uh, especially. So, but it, it, for Kentucky, for Stoops, uh, what what stands out to you? What's what's got your mind going about these comments? Yeah, I, I, look, I I think you have to get inside the head of of this caller. Who, who called and, and asked Mark about his record against SEC teams that finished with a winning record in conference. And I guess he only has like two wins against teams that finished with a winning SEC record. And I really have to wonder what this caller was saying 10 years ago before Mark Stoops took this job, right? 
Let's remember how bad of a job Kentucky actually is when it comes to being able to win on a big-time level. Kentucky went and hired Mark Stoops because they had won 20 SEC games in the 10 years prior to hiring him. He has won 34, okay? Not quite double, but damn near. Kentucky needed something to basically occupy their fans during the basketball offseason and to like not be a, an embarrassment in the conference. Stoops has absolutely done that. And for a long time, Kentucky was really reasonable. They were like, hey, Mark, if you win seven games, which for a Kentucky team is generally a really good mark, they would give him an extra year extension. It was one of the smartest, most reasonable, hey, we get what we are. The goals are clearly defined for you contracts in the sport. Now that's changed a little bit. Now he makes $8 million. The, the automatic rollover for just making the bowl game are gone. And I understand what Mark's saying about the NIL, and I'm glad that Kirby and, and Zion said the same thing. Yes, like put aside the whole part about like buying players like they're chattel, but like, yes, it, it's it's like free agency, right? You're going to go to where pays you the most, just like Mark Stoops was the DC at Florida State, and he got like an 8X race to go be the head coach at Kentucky. I, I don't really care about all that stuff, and, and I understand what Stoops is saying here. Do you know that in the previous 10 years, Kentucky also only won two games against teams that finished with a winning SC record? But here's a crazy stat. Kentucky only had three wins in the previous 10 years before Stoops got there over teams that finished with a 4-4 four and four record in conference. Basically, the only time Kentucky was winning games in conference were against the teams that were like Mississippi State, Vanderbilt. Like I went through this this morning. The games Kentucky used to win in conference were against teams that finished 0-8, 1-7, occasionally 2-6. It was basically like there was basically a two game SC schedule that they had to pray for a win. They would occasionally get like the Bluegrass Miracle and they beat a Mark Rick team one year that was a major letdown. And I think they had a really wild win over that South Carolina team, one of the Spurrier years, right? Other than that, it was basically not. They were also getting blown out in the SC play a ton. Like Stoops' teams play hard. He's raised the ceiling there. And yeah, could they use more NIL money? Sure, but they have some NIL money. Like I know about some battles they've won for players. Like they're kind of the number one guy on Kentucky's board. They're more like the seventh or eight guy on the other team's board, and they outspend them for it, and they get them. But they don't need more NIL money. They need a time machine and a moving truck, okay? You need about 100 more years of fan passion, investment, history, tradition, and you need to move your location to a place that produces more good high school football players. Georgia, Florida, Baton Rouge, Birmingham, like I, I worry that that Kentucky is kind of getting Glenn Mason here with Mark Stoops. Like Mark Stoops has you at your absolute ceiling. I have no hopes for Kentucky ever being better than this. I will die before Kentucky wins the SEC. Okay, <laughs> and like with the next guy you hire will be worse than Mark Stoops, almost guaranteed. This is probably the best run Kentucky will ever have post World War II on the football field. This this ten year period, like this is nuts if he gets any kind of heat there. But I worry, like because you're paying the eight million dollars now because you got to spend the money on something that the expectations are raised. But paying Mark Stoops $8 million doesn't change where Lexington is located or where you know, Gainesville is or Baton Rouge or Georgia. Like They're always going to get better players than you. It, and they wouldn't pick you even if you matched the money. You'd have to, like, what, triple them? Well, yeah, like, and go to Kentucky so, over Georgia? This and, is, and to this your is point so about silly. location, it, the, the option that he's had is, okay, we're going to go into Ohio and try to get players there and you know, just try to swing that SEC card but especially with the way that you know Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State are all running right now, getting players from that region is really, really tough. Yeah. I I think it goes two ways, though. Like, he's trying to – you said they need to get hundreds of years of passion from their fans. 
I think you're starting to see that turn. I think this question to a radio show is a sign that that is what is turning because for years, let's like you said, they hired him just because they wanted to keep people distracted or interested in something until basketball season starts. And for a while, like Kentucky had football fans, but there was a very large sense of apathy towards the program compared to other SEC programs. But now you're seeing that shift when you go from a bottom tier, you know, doormat to a team that is just competent at first for a fan base. The first few years, it's like, hell yeah, look at us. We're going to bowl games. This is awesome. But then after you're going to six, seven and five, eight and four for a few seasons in a row, the expectations start to raise because, OK, well, we're used to this now. Now we want more. So. I think that it's a good sign that fans are kind of looking at really ridiculous statistics like your win and loss record against teams that finished with a winning season in the SEC play over the last 20 years because it shows that they care. They care more than they did before. So the money that you're asking for, maybe you're going to start seeing it because clearly the fans are more invested in the program than they probably were before Stoops got there. So I think this is all probably a good sign in the long run. He should leave, right? Like now that they really think this program can do more, like he should go bounce and and start like start a reclamation at Michigan State or or somewhere else. Like there is no more to be had. Not as long as his boss understands. But this is the problem for the boss. It's it's Mitch Barnhart at Kentucky, right? Mm -hmm. This is the big lie. This is the big lie of the sport. He has to go to his boosters and tell them. What does that mean? What's the bit? You mentioned that you're like, let's talk about college football's big lie. And I was like, which one? You know? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Right. So. If you're Mitch Barnhart, you are probably like you're not an idiot, right? You've made some really good hires, basketball and football. You understand that Stoops has this thing basically maxed out, about as good as you can possibly think you could do at Kentucky. I mean, 34 wins in 10 years is absolutely insane for Kentucky in SEC play. And it's going to get harder now that Oklahoma and Texas come in. Because guess what? You're underdogs in those games every single year that I've been alive. So, man. Even though you know Stoops doing a good job, it's hard to go to your boosters and tell them, hey, man, we need you to keep donating or donate even more to maintain this status quo that I, because I'm not an idiot and I work in college sports, know how damn good this is. But your boosters, they don't want to hear that. They want to have some reason to believe that there is another level they can unlock if they just give a little bit more, right? If we just build this building, if we just buy one more player. But, like, it's Kentucky. There's not... that that's the big lie. It's like, this is why sometimes you see coaches that do a good job, consistent, good job, get fired when they probably shouldn't because you, the donations stop coming. If you're not able to keep selling the the vision of hope. If I think with college football, probably the most, like, and I never really fully appreciated this. The greatest coaches are the best recruiters. They amass the best talent. It is all about talent acquisition. Like if there was a level playing field, I think Mark Stoops would be. I'd think he'd probably be like Mike Tomlin in the NFL, like a coach that just wins all the time. You'd get some championships and consistently turns out a winner. Like I, I think he is extremely underrated. I look at a lot of coaches who win with less because that's essentially what you're doing, and he's doing a phenomenal job. Um, the only thing I would say is, do you think because I've heard. Mike Loxley talked to him at the Super Bowl last year. You've heard other coaches say, hey, we need to get more regulation. If we get to a place where there is a salary cap, then all of a sudden it's a game changer because then he elevates to one of the best coaches in college football, which is kind of crazy that that's what it would take. 
but he's playing with one arm behind his back. He's just not, he does not have the same talent as you guys are talking about. I think probably one of the bigger examples, though, that gives you hope is, I mean, the Florida Gators for almost 30 years won this game. And it didn't matter. The Florida Gators had bad years in those 30 years. It was like, well, we're always going to beat Kentucky. And now he's beat them three straight years in a row. I mean, it's pretty remarkable where he's elevated this program. Bud gave way better stats that kind of just, but that and a little one, plus get a little jab at the Gators in there. But it is like, it is pretty remarkable that he's been able to rattle that thing off three years in a row. I can't wait for the day where a team is forcing a player to enter the transfer portal because the salary cap crunch. It's like, sorry, we can't afford you anymore. You've got a portal somewhere. Yeah, I think it might happen at Georgia this (laughs) offseason. I mean, according to what I was listening to on Tuesday on the Cover 3 podcast, they might have a 30-person class. And if you look at who's going to be going to the NFL in a 30-person class, (laughs) sorry, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't hit the streets and drive too fast on them, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's low. Um, Um. Let's let's just dig into it, man. Oregon-Washington talk is buzzing in the chat. We need to do it. Coming up on the other side, every single Wednesday, we take some of the biggest matchups of the week, and we go deeper. It's not just the locks. We save that for Thursday. Inside the matchup of some of the big games for Week 7, beginning with Oregon at Washington. Next. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast every single wednesday we like to break down the big games and creatively we've named the segment big game breakdown Chapter one of the Pac-12's 
iconic conclusion to the 2023 season as all of these teams are seemingly going to be playing each other with huge stakes, uh, college football playoff, Pac-12 championship. And, and the first bit that we get is Oregon on the road at Washington. Both teams were off last week. Um, Tom, I'll start with you. Which t- Take us inside this matchup, or if you there's a storyline that you want to jump on, definitely grab that. What stands out to you, um, and what are you thinking about when we're breaking this down? I mean, we all know I think Washington is a wagon, but I also think this is a terrible matchup for Washington. I, I look at the matchup, and these two teams are very similar in a lot of senses. It's just there's one spot in particular where Washington is really going to struggle against this Oregon team because Washington, like, defensively, we know it is not an elite defense, and it hasn't been. Like, they've struggled giving up points to some teams that a good defense isn't going to be giving up points to. Although, that said, the Arizona team that gave Washington trouble gave USC trouble, too. So maybe Arizona is just better than we think. But where Washington has really struggled is stopping the run. And for me, going into this matchup against what I consider to be the best offensive line in the country, at least I, I think performance-wise, it's very easy to make the argument that Oregon has been a dominant offensive line. Teams don't get pressure on them in the passing game, and part of that is Bo Nix getting the ball out quickly. But they don't get pressure on them. In the run game, they open up holes. They don't lose. They don't get tackled. You know, They don't give up a lot of havoc plays. Like There aren't, there aren't plays where Oregon's going backwards very often. These guys are getting their blocks, and very often, more often than not, they're getting to the second level with these blocks, and they're creating huge gaps and holes for the, you know, for the running backs. And I think that that going into like when I look at Washington's defense, I don't think they're terrible at linebacker. I don't think they're bad in the secondary, and I don't think they're that bad on the defensive line. It's just it's not the same kind of talent up front that we have seen this Washington team have in years past, where they've had guys like Joe Tryon and Vita Vea, who've all gone on to the NFL and been very good players. They don't have that guy, and they have struggled to stop the run because of it. And when I look at this Oregon offensive line, which probably features, you know, like we got our ballots this week we're supposed to turn in for our midseason All-Americans. I'm going to have at least two Oregon offensive linemen on my midseason All-American team. It's a very good unit, and I think that is going to be the key battle. Washington is going to have to figure out a way to stop Oregon from running the ball. I don't know if they can, and if they can't, even at home, they're going to need Oregon to turn the ball over, which is also something that Oregon just doesn't do. They take very good care of the football. They don't make mistakes. They don't beat themselves. So they have to find something to take that run game away and force Bo Nix to do everything on his own in the passing game on the road in a very loud environment. I think that is really their only chance to get you know success here, unless Michael Penix just absolutely balls out in Washington and ends up putting 50, 60 points up on Oregon, which isn't totally out of the question because last year's game was a shootout, although I think it was 37, 34. Mm-hmm. But it's just it's Washington's going to have to be perfect offensively in this game, just based on what I see from this matchup of their defensive front against Oregon's offensive line. The Huskies cannot make mistakes. I want to focus on the other side then, because I, I think Tom did a really good job on that. I, I'm reasonably confident that Oregon will will score. Um, this is probably a, a good opportunity for for Oregon to play red zone roulette. Let's go back to the preseason and recall that Washington lost their running back, who was sort of their more short yardage, you know, red zone tight area guy for the year. Washington has not been a great running team this year, but they are a ridiculous throw team. I mean, they have, I think, three like 
no doubt draft picks. Polk's probably a later round guy, but I mean, <laughs> Odunze is getting picked pretty high. McMillan is, is is damn good. And when I watch them, it feels like I'm watching like Boise State from a decade ago, but with studs at receiver. I mean, all, all, all the little motions they do, they get you out leveraged pre-snap really well. They create free runners in, in, in your secondary. It's mostly like like post and corner combinations. They they run a lot of stuff from like reduced splits. Uh, they, they go a lot of like trips boundary stuff. They'll play some unbalanced. They they try to create freebies, and then Penix uh, is able to really lay the ball out there super accurately and anticipate where where it's going to be. Uh, Arizona played off them a pretty good bit, mm-hmm. and they were they reduced the number of explosive plays Washington could hit. I I think I like. Oregon's ability to be long in the secondary and disrupt some passing lanes. Oregon has had a pretty good interior pass rush. We'll see if that can hold up in this game. I think that's where you have to attack Washington. Washington's tackles this year, they might be the two best tackles in this game. Certainly left tackles, a stud. Mm -hmm. Um, Interior line has not been quite as good. Uh, They really haven't faced much of a pass rush at all. Arizona's pass rush is not, not special. Uh, Michigan State's a much better run defense than it is a pass defense. Boise's corners this year and pass defense in general are, are horrid. Uh, Tulsa ditto, and there's one other team they play, but essentially they've not really faced a, a what I would call a good pass defense yet. So I'm interested to see like how much zone Oregon can play uh, because they're a team that likes to play a lot of man. Uh, but they are pretty long back there, and I, I would – I think just patience – from the Oregon plan is going to be really key here. You know, making Washington drive, understanding that allowing 24, 27, heck, probably 31 are, are acceptable numbers for this defense in this game because your offense has to be have the mentality that it can go and score 40. I don't think you need to blitz them a lot, but I you do have to find a way to get Penix moving. He's a guy that, like, from a clean pocket is just surgical, man. But when he's... When he's on the move, I don't think he's quite as good. Like I think his eyes come down a little bit, and I think he's gettable. I mean, gettable relative to what he normally does, which is like video game stuff, nonstop. But I, I would say limit the explosives. Try to find ways, you know, with, with your bluffs and your sim pressures to get Penix off his spot. Maybe like you got to find ways to create free runners at the quarterback without outnumbering the offense. You got to find a way to bust the protections a couple times, get them off their spots, and and hold them to something high 20s, low 30s. I think it'll give you an excellent chance to win the game. But that's easier said than done. Like, Yeah, McMillan also didn't play against Arizona. McMillan's, uh, according to reports, Kalen DeBoer is saying McMillan's going to be back. They had Polk. They had um, Adunze. But it looks like they're going to be trotting out a full, healthy, ready-to-go wide-receiving core for this matchup. Also survive the scripts. DeBoer, like, off kickoff, first quarter, halftime stuff is, mm-hmm. is a stud. First 15, coming out, scripted plays. Yes. Awesome. Find out you're feeling out the other team, but you're also dialing up some of your favorite plays as well. Your shot plays maybe they haven't seen, stuff you've been working on. You've got it all. You know, you've watched all the game film. Is it me or is Oregon just a more complete team? That is not just that's not you. But yeah. They're the more complete team. They run, they're more balanced. Like it's great what Michael Penix is doing. It is phenomenal. They have pretty much not tried to run the football much. And I think Will Stein is like one of those. The offense almost looks like, hey, let's make sure we're balanced. Let's and then they're top 10 in both rushing and passing. 
The defense, I think, is the biggest upgrade you've seen from Oregon this year. I mean, they are, and it's no surprise, like Dan Lanning, defensive-minded coach, you wouldn't think they would struggle as much as they did last year again this year. And as you mentioned, Washington has not been great at all on the defensive side of the ball. I think a lot of this does come down to Bo Nix. We kind of you know, gave you some generic stuff on Monday, I think it was, when we were talking about selling Bo Nix. I don't know. I'm, I might have sold too early. He, uh, some of that stuff does go back to the SEC. Like, you know, our stat pack put out the stat against uh, AP top 10 teams at a road or neutral site. It's two touchdowns, nine interceptions. He's 0-6 in those matchups. Some of those go back to the SEC. When it was lopsided, he was at Auburn. Auburn wasn't very good. And you're playing against Georgia, you know, or, or, or Oregon, and you're playing against Georgia, you know, who's a, one of the best teams we've seen. I do, I am skeptical of him, but I think they'll come up with a game plan where it is, let's lean into Bo Nix, the manager. Let's not put him in a lot of positions to, to fail. Let's kind of, we'll run the ball with effect. We'll work some play action, get the ball out of his hands quickly, kind of like you saw them march down the field against Colorado. Um, it's just, you know, does the crowd noise impact him? Is there some adversity? Do they give up big plays early where you're starting to like, where you start to trail and you get off script and all of a sudden you're getting a little more desperate? Like I think to Bud's point, you got to be patient no matter what the score is. But I don't know. I think Oregon is the more complete team. I like Oregon's defense. Um, I think that it is a group. So I was going back into what you did against Colorado. You know, what what are you going to say about that? Like what you did against Stanford, um, what you did against Hawaii, but in the Texas tech game, which is, you know, the, it was 38 30 and a game that was one point game until the very, very end with the pick six to close it out. I was going through and I think the ducks defense closed that game. Well, like they they were on the road, uh, they got got by a couple of Tyler Shuck plays. They all of a sudden found themselves in a spot. And if you go and you look at like the last twenty minutes of that game, they just allowed one field goal. You know, like they were getting stops. They were putting the ball back in the offense's hands. So even in the one performance that is the outlier for against an otherwise outstanding profile, you know, you can apply some context to it and be like, okay. Because the season-long statistics are phenomenal, again, because guess what? Six points to Stanford, six points to Colorado, 10 points to Hawaii. Like You've just been squeezing the life out of bad teams. Huge upgrade going to be coming here. But I like going back into that Texas Tech game and saying, like, okay, like you, you found yourself getting beat a little bit, and you were able to, some combination of settling in, making adjustments, and find out a way to get winning football. I think, that's, I think that experience is going to be huge, especially playing in Husky Stadium, which, I mean, guys, we know this, but when that place is rocking, mm -hmm. it is loud, and it is a tough, tough place to play. It's um, quite literally all, rocking. Yeah. It's going. Yeah, it shakes. <laughs> um, so I th I'm, I'm, I'm agree with you, Danny. Like I, I think that the Oregon defense being better than Washington's defense is the the read on this going into it. And if that Ducks defense uh, can somewhat limit, even just a little bit, then I, I think that's the path to victory in a very, very tough situation. Is, is the gap between Oregon's defense and Washington's defense bigger than the gap between Washington's offense and Oregon's offense? Yes. <sighs> I think so, too. Mm -hmm. My question feel here... I don't know if I feel super strong. I got. I don't think the gap is massive, right? Yeah, agreed. Like that's why the line is what two and a half. 
you know, like, like basically, like if if you give Washington like a three and a half home, we're implying Oregon's like a point better on a neutral. It doesn't seem crazy. Like if you give either team three points on a neutral, you're, you're going to take the dog in this matchup. I, I would, I would think. Uh, my my one hesitation about Oregon is we don't, I don't feel I really know how good this D line is, because they have played four O lines that I would classify as just like legitimately bad offensive lines. Colorado, Stanford, Hawaii, and the FCS team. I mean, Texas Tech is probably the best O-line that they have faced. And even Texas Tech people will tell you that their tackles are, are the weakness of the football team. And would any is there a single player that they have faced so far on the offensive line who could start on Washington's offensive line? Like that's when Oregon gets problems. If Washington can block Oregon's four down guys and they have to start bringing bring pressures, I don't think Oregon's DBs are better than what are, are better than, than Washington's receivers. Like if, if Washington can block it up, and Oregon has to start sending guys, that's how UW can find a way to score forty five or fifty. Scheme wise, we talked about Dan Lanning doing Georgia stuff with that Oregon defense. Do you think you have to break out of that because of how much firepower you have at the wide receiver position? I think I might lean more into it, honestly. Okay. Is that the, that's the red zone roulette type situation? Well, I think like, that's just basically like don't allow explosive scores and, and see if they can win in tight area. Mm-hmm. And I'll, like, you know, they, they, I will say, I don't know the number, but I do feel like Oregon plays more man under landing than they were when he was at Georgia coordinating that defense. And I think that maybe you might want to lean like kind of what you're saying more into a zone here. Number one in the country in success rate margin number one in the country in available yards percentage margin number one in the country in yards per play margin your oregon ducks they're good pretty uh pretty well-rounded team um fascinated to see how that ends up playing out um all right you want to do usc notre dame or north carolina miami next dealer's choice you're the dealer okay <laughs> well then you're the carolina boy yeah, <laughs> no. we're ACC boys. Yeah. It's not. It's not even a game. Tar Heels have won four straight against the Canes. It's a one-sided rivalry. Damn. Let's go. Let's do like Notre Dame USC. Uh, will Notre Dame's defense slow down Caleb Williams? I know what the other side looks like. You know, we we can we can talk about the other side, but the game to me hinges on that. USC's hopes and dreams of competing for a national championship probably hinge on Caleb Williams' success against Notre Dame's defense. Games in South Bend, how do you think the Fighting Irish are going to hold up against USC? Better than most, but not not well. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit on Monday show and on the Saturday Night Reaction show at, with Notre Dame losing to Louisville. Their last three games have been very tough games against Ohio State, Duke, and Louisville, and now they're returning home, and they've got Caleb Williams and USC coming to town. Like That is a very tough stretch of games, and you're at the very back end of it, and I just feel like defensively, Notre Dame is you know, the best defense USC has faced, but USC hasn't faced anybody. That's kind of the whole point. It's just... Has Notre Dame faced anything close to what USC has in its receivers? Yes. Ohio State has Marvin Harrison and Igmeka Ibuka. No disrespect to Kyle McCord, but he's not Caleb Williams. Mm-hmm. 
he can't do the same kind of stuff that Caleb can. So I think this will be their toughest test so far. They did a pretty damn good job of slowing down Ohio State, though. So I think Notre Dame defensively can slow this team down compared to how other teams do. It's just, can you force Caleb Williams into making mistakes? And I do think that Caleb has them in him. He just hasn't really had to pay for any of them at this point because he hasn't faced a team good enough to really create it. So it is going to be an interesting matchup. I think the bigger key, though, is you can slow this Trojans offense down. You're not going to stop it. They're probably going to get 30 points on you. That's just the way it works. Can Notre Dame score 30 points? Like, is this finally a defense where they're going up against where they can take advantage of it and move the ball effectively and put points on the board? Because I, my gut feeling is Marcus Freeman and this team are going to do the thing they've done in all these kind of games. Just slow it down, limit possessions, try to keep it low scoring and close, give ourselves a chance to win. I don't think that works in this game. I think you need to be aggressive. I think you need to look at that USC defense and realize everybody else has torn this thing apart. We need to tear it apart too. That's the best way for us to get to victory. We don't want to be stuck in a one possession game where we're putting everything on our defense at the end after this run of games like we did against Ohio State and we lost. If you put yourself in that same position this weekend against USC, you're going to lose. If Notre Dame can't score against this USC defense, it's broken. Yes. And we've seen it get worse and worse and worse. And if it if it can't do if it at home against this defense, which despite all of Lincoln Riley's diatribes defending the defense, you know, is very, very mediocre. Then you know what one of the best things US or excuse me, Notre Dame might have going for it? Mother Nature. Do you see the video of them trying to field punts with the hose? It was pretty funny. Yeah. There's a coach out there like spraying water. It, I just checked the forecast. It says thunderstorms, like just rain thunderstorms on Saturday. That would be your best best defense possible against Caleb Williams because I don't know any quarterback that likes to throw it in wet conditions when the ball is slick and you can't you can't grab it. I agree with everything you guys said. The only thing I would push back on, Tom, is I don't think you have to abandon the run to be aggressive. Like, no. I think you try to run right at them. I do think you try to out-physical them up front, which should play right into Notre Dame's hands. And then Sam Hartman has to have a big bounce-back game. Like, it's going to be rainy for him, too. But if it is, a like, a rainy game, that should benefit Notre Dame in a big way. And I do think Caleb, he's he's so tough. He's playing unbelievable well. But I, like you said, Tom, I think he's got – like, he's had some mistakes that haven't burned him yet. Mm-hmm. You have to make him pay – and have to make sure like you don't give up the big plays. No, like, I'm 100% have with you. you. You have to run the ball on this team because if there's anything they actually do well defensively, it's get pressure on opposing quarterbacks. Like They have a pretty decent pass rush, so you need to run the ball to kind of slow that down, but you can't just run the ball. You're going to have to take more shots down the field than you have been against anybody else. To Chip's point about if – you know, if, if you can't score on this USC defense, it means the, the Irish offense is, is broken. I, I would sort of take the counterfactual. If you do score on this USC defense, it does not necessarily mean that the Irish These offense fixed. is fixed. Because we've seen a lot of offenses that, that are, are still awful score on these guys. I, I mean, look, if I'm USC, I'm going to try to copy largely what Louisville did uh, and what Marshall did last year and what Stanford did last year, and just say, 
we think y'all's receivers suck. We're going to load the box. We're going to load it, load it, load it. What the Irish rush for? Like 40? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Against I mean, you just, like they, yeah. you, th- that, that box score is the easiest Notre Dame loses box score. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. No wonder they lost. I'm amazed it was that close. And it really wasn't even like that close of a competition. I want Grinch, if I'm a USC fan, I want Grinch to be aggressive as hell in this game. If it means that we give up 35, but we're getting 14 possessions because the 35 happens quickly and I get to run 80 plays with Caleb, I, I like my chances. I don't like it if if Notre Dame is grinding out slow possessions, keeping Caleb out of rhythm, keeping him off the field. There's also the aspect here, like, guys, if you obviously we watch it. If you're at home, I don't know how much they watch USC because they're late night. They've played six nobody so far. I guess they watch the Colorado game, part of it at least. They're not – a lot of the offense so far has kind of been like Caleb drop back, Caleb run around. Mm-hmm. Caleb leads the nation in time to throw, and it's like they're kind of like scramble drill from word go <laughs> on, on a lot of these plays, man. It, it's it's kind of wild, and it works because he's such a special player. But let's go back. Like Lincoln Riley is a guy who's always been great at scheming open – coverage bus like he figures out what your coverage rules are and he breaks them like how many times can he break notre dame's coverage rules can he get caleb a couple wide open shots that caleb hits like we asked the question with brahm last week can brahm scheme 14 points for louisville like just open stuff where, where, where they break it like i think the question is probably more like can riley scheme 17 because i'm confident caleb will have some good drives can they create the freebies that way I don't know. I, USC's defense gives freebies to everybody, so it doesn't really seem to matter. I, I don't have a great feel for this. I went back to look at last year's game. Drew Pine had 300 yards passing and three touchdowns. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, Drew Pine I, tore this defense apart <clears throat> last year. They played so well, or so hard. I don't know about well, but like so hard. I, I do want to make the point, though, like we're USC's defense still is not good and it is still a serious problem for them when they play other good teams but it has improved a lot from the defense last year statistically yes. if you look at a lot of areas it is it is much but like that unit last year was ranking in the 115 to 120s in a whole lot of stats whereas now they're between 60s. 60 and 80 yeah, 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 yeah. and that is a huge improvement i mean but it's still well, not season's good not over yet but the offense sure, is getting worse. better competition like mm-hmm. it might be going Easy. the wrong direction <laughs> um you know to to bud's point even Lincoln Riley is drawing up plays to rely on Caleb. The two-point play, mm-hmm. the way it was designed, they had an extra DB that was unblocked that they, you essentially say, usually it's a running back. You're like, you have to beat one guy. He's, they say Caleb beat that guy, and he did. Like, he gave him a little juke, got it to the corner. It's What he's doing is remarkable. But I'm with you. It's, it's not as clean. Ball's coming out. Like, here you go, one, two, three. It is – let me run around and make a little play. It's and it's crazy it's to watch. It is it is video it is video game yeah. numbers that is being yeah. played by a player that looks like somebody has the sticks. Just hit snap and starts running off to the side to the open part of the field. I do think they need branch. Oh yeah, like That's- Addison was was really he wasn't crazy numbers for them last year, but the athleticism did make them kind of scary in a different way. And branch is maybe like the most electric player. Like he's the closest thing we have in college football to Tyreek Hill. Mm-hmm. And him being out the last two weeks has been noticeable. Like he was kind of their easy button along with Caleb 
especially on this scramble stuff because you just you can't cover him for like four seconds. Right. It's just not not happening. I don't know. I don't have a great feel for this game. It, no, but there's that, so many questions point, on like, both sides. This this game is so margins in a lot of different places that Branch is a like I like it. It's it is a difference that if you have him on the field, even if it's just one play, that one play could end up deciding the game. Well, because he's he's the guy you have to be aware of every single mm-hmm. time he's on the field. Hundred percent. Coming up on the other side, more big game breakdowns, including North Carolina welcoming Miami to town and Texas A&M. No time to lick your wounds. Neyland Stadium awaits you. We'll get into that and more next. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Saturday, an SEC on CBS doubleheader begins at noon Eastern with number one Georgia taking on Vanderbilt. Then in the 3.30 slot, Texas A&M is on the road at 19th ranked Tennessee. Saturday, the SEC is on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Tom, speaking of the SEC on CBS, Georgia Vandy, are you using negative home field for that? <laughs> no, no, like, like it's a legit question because Georgia fans are like eighty percent of that stadium on that game. Like they make it, like they do the bus tours up, up, up from Atlanta. They make it like a huge Nashville weekend. Like last year, the photos were, were insane. Like, what? So, I, what about the mental? You're getting changed under a hanging scoreboard. All right, that is right. a. That's what I'm asking. Like, are you using a hanging over or do you just use zero? <laughs> I go zero. I I went zero as well. Yeah. Seriously, the, the existential dread of that scoreboard collapsing oh, and yeah. up you guys to have an impact from the game. Um, all right, so what about that 3.30, uh, 3.30 p.m. Eastern time kickoff from Knoxville? Tennessee had last week off. Uh, Texas A&M loses close to Alabama at home. Um, I'm ex- uh, Bud, why don't you get us started? What, which, which piece of this do you want to um, – are you most interested in? How how much AM can bounce back like that? You're, you're getting Tennessee off a bye, Tennessee getting healthier, you know, right tackles back, centers back. Milton has obviously had a number of injury stuff. If you watch him, like the, his scrambles against South Carolina had no juice. Like I'm, I'm convinced he was hurt, like more hurt than, than they really let on. Getting him another week to rest up. But man, like the Texas AM pass protection. Uh, was was pretty poor at home against Alabama. And uh, we've seen them have big-time breakdowns in, in, in pass pro on the road before. Tennessee has some real juice rushing the passer this year. And I I uh, I retract my statements on Max Johnson. 
Like I, I really thought that he was going to be okay. And now I'm I'm grading him as a major downgrade from Wegman. Like I, I don't like how he protects the football. I, I, I don't like how he protects his body. Like he's like out there like like diving and like, like taking really unnecessary hits. I'm like, bro, I, I don't know who the third stringer is for AM, but he's probably off like almost every team's third stringer. <laughs> Did you hear Brad say that on the call? No. Uh, I I because it it was it was Brad and Gary on the call last week for Alabama AM. Yeah, yeah. Brad yeah. was like the way the young man's out there, you need to remind him there's not another backup ready to go. Like sitting there, <laughs> allowing himself to get crushed. Yeah, I, I thought he's going to have to speed up his internal play yeah. clock. Like every quarterback, they talk about a clock that you have to be able to feel when you have to get rid of the football. I was kind of blown away. It was taking him a long time. The clock needs to speed up, and that's probably from not playing for a while. I thought he played pretty good in the first half and the second half when the protection got, you know, uh, really broke down, it was evident. But I also thought his coaching staff didn't do any favors by getting away from some of the play action pass and running the football the way they did in the first half. Um, so I think that like, I almost feel like this is one where as good as Bobby Petrino has been, I've liked the addition of him. Like, do you go back to the Jimbo? Let's slow this thing down. Let's keep it out of Tennessee, who goes at the fastest pace of anybody in college football. You take the you try to take the crowd out of the game by long, sustained drives, and you try to keep them off the field. Like I and you protect your quarterback that way. Hey, like DJ you, Durkin you know, is begging for that. DJ Durkin yeah. is like, please do not put our defense <laughs> back on the field already. As Bud mentioned earlier, the pass defense has just gotten picked apart on deep shots. This is the worst possible matchup if you're if your weakness is sticking with wide receivers on deep plays down the field i i think part of the reason texas a&m struggles to keep its offense on the field and i mean like when you power rate teams there there are a lot of numbers you look at and but i'm sure you're the same way here it first and second down to me are more important offensively than what you're doing on third and fourth down because I think you set yourself up on first and second down to be successful on third or fourth down. Texas A&M's offense on first and second down has been terrible all season long. They have put themselves in third and longs continuously, and that is part of the reason why, whether it's Connor Wegman or Max Johnson, you're seeing them back there forever waiting, getting hit because they've got to wait for Jimbo's 15 different route combinations to come open at any given time. And that's impacted them. And I think, like, Bud, you're talking about this Tennessee pass rush. I think going on the road against this Tennessee defense, this offense needs to figure something out on first and second down to put itself in better positions or else they're going to be digging themselves out of a hole. But at the same time, I do think Tennessee's offense has been very – it's explosive-ish. It is nothing like the offense we saw last year. It is very hit or miss. It is – Joe Milton is like we, we've spent so much time talking about Jalen Milrow this season because of Alabama's quote unquote quarterback controversy and Milrow getting benched for the week. But Joe Milton, I, I would rather have Jalen Milrow than Joe Milton. I, I, I think they're pretty much the same guy for the most part, except I think I'd rather have Milrow's running ability. So Milton needs to find some consistency because, yeah, there are shots you can take against this Texas A&M defense, but you have to hit them. And I've seen Milton miss too many of them this year that I don't have the utmost confidence. Like, I I don't really have a great lean in this game because of that. And I think this is one that could go anyway. And I think it's really just going to come down to, as simple as it sounds, which quarterback plays better? 
Whichever quarterback plays better, that team is going to win. That's just how I feel about this one. And just protects the ball because you're going to get sacked. I mean, both these teams are top three in the country in sacks. Like, they're getting pressure. Um, Texas A&M getting 17.6% um, uh, success rate getting to the QB. Like, they are hitting the court. So, both yeah. of these quarterbacks are going to have to deal with some adversity. And it's like, which one do you trust better? I, The Texas A&M secondary is a problem, you know? Yeah. But if you're I- DJ Durkin, do you – do you just say, let's get after it? Let's like, because if you don't, because I thought they, again, I thought they did better in the first half, getting pressures, being more aggressive. And then when they played a little bit softer and tried to get home with four, they didn't get the pressure and their secondary can't cover. They can't cover that long. I agree with that for sure. I I have concerns about DJ Durkin against these up-tempo offenses. The last time we really saw them play one was last year at home against Lane, and Lane clowned him. I mean, that, that was not a good old Miss offense last year, and it was just – they were helpless. He just out-schemed them like crazy. Uh, I That's probably the closest thing they've seen in terms of spreading the field width-wise and going tempo. Like, not that Lane is running the, the veer-and-shoot stuff, but uh, – the last time we saw AM try to play this type of offense, they handled it really poorly. I I would make them prove it to me that they can do it. In Chapel Hill on Saturday night, hype meets the hurricanes. Danny, like for we can get or if you want to jump on the like how does Miami respond from being embarrassed? If that's the thing that stands out the most to you, definitely uh dive in. But now, where are you seeing this matchup, which, you know, according to the odds here, like if you were to go vibes alone, North Carolina would be a 14 point favorite, but guess what? Yeah. Vibes, uh, vibes don't make the numbers. This is a, this is a even competitive game between two teams that especially offensively can go out there and score and have proven that so far this year. What are you looking at in the North Carolina Miami showdown? You know what the odds makers do? They ignore a knee that wasn't taken. Right. They don't, yeah. they're like, hey, that team should have won that game. You know, it doesn't bother them now. The vibes come in. Where is your team emotionally, mentally coming in from that one? Um, I think it's going to be a fun game. I think there's a huge opportunity for Miami to bounce back and like put, get that bad taste out of their mouth. Drake May is playing better this season than he did last year. The numbers aren't as good. I mean, his last, this game against Syracuse was his best performance all around. Uh, and statistically, it started to catch up. You know, where, where before that, I think he was five touchdowns, four interceptions. It just yeah. looked kind of blah. But he, even in those games, if you watch the decision making he was getting, my, the one thing that's kind of interesting is North Carolina has not been running the ball great. They had the one outlier game, and they have not been able to run the football much. So I feel like this game could have an even more of a Drake May has to take over type because Miami's defensive line is still pretty good. Um, and then on the flip side, North Carolina's defense is better. And you talk about vibes, like it's a good thing we're talking about the knee at the end of the game because Tyler Van Dyke did not look good at all against Georgia Tech. Like he needs to have the big bounce back game uh, for them. So I think Lance Gidry, I think this, I think this Hurricanes defense is really good. Uh, the secondary got exposed a little bit late in that game. I think th- I, this is one like there's. I feel I have a I have less feel for this week as far as the big games of like who I feel really good about than almost any week we've done, I think. I I think if you just take the players and throw them on the field, 
Miami is the better team. I think the difference is I have far more trust in Drake May, and I kind of trust North Carolina's coaching over Miami's. I mean, I, I, I'm not a huge Mac Brown advocate as far as coaching decisions, but I think he's got an advantage over Mario in that department. So this is <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I was I was agreeing. Like, I mean, Mac Brown is not actively losing games with game yeah. management blunders like Mario is. <laughs> but there's like, there's but Mac has bad. his like, moments though. So yeah, I, I don't yeah. have Mac as a plus, but like. Yeah. That that's my point. It's like it's an advantage, although it's like a you know it's it's not exactly a first place award gold star. Um, I just yeah I I I think you mentioned it, Danny. Like North Carolina, I I don't know if they don't run the ball well as much as they just aren't running the ball enough. But I also wonder if this is the matchup where you want to start running the ball because I think if there's one thing I don't really want to test this Miami defense on, it's it's running the ball against it. I do think that. One thing that stood out with May last week against Syracuse is he became more of a runner. They used him more actively in the running game. Maybe you see some of that to try to open things up inside. But I do think that – I think if there is a weakness in this Miami defense, it's on the back end. And I think that North Carolina has the advantage with May and in an ability to take advantage of that. So I do think Drake May is going to have to have a big game for North Carolina to win this game. But I also think that – Tyler Van Dyke is better than the guy we saw last week. He played poorly, but he before that, like go back to the AM game. He was very good in that game, and he's been very good for them in most games. I think he just had a bad night, and his team still should have won the damn game. So I don't know. It's I, I'm with you. I don't have a strong feeling on this one either way. My inkling is North Carolina, but I will not be surprised at all if Miami just kind of rallies around everything that happened last week and just you know, stomps the Tar Heels. There's certainly an argument to be made that North Carolina has not faced a good offensive line and maybe not even a decent offensive line so far. Like, how real is this defense that we have seen from the Tar Heels? South Carolina was an absolute disaster up front. You know, App is probably the best one they've seen, maybe. Minnesota was having a lot of problems at the time. Uh, Pitt was down four of their top five starters in that game in Pittsburgh. Syracuse is basically falling apart, and they they were another right Mm -hmm. tackle. I think their guard went down as well. Miami's offensive line is legitimately pretty good, and there's some chance that these stats from UNC's defensive line are not not what they see. And there's some chance that Miami can block it up and and maybe – you know, maybe expose the, the back end for UNC, which I, I when when I watch them, like they're gettable there. I think if if you really block it up, like you could you could throw the ball on them some. Uh, but Georgia Tech was gettable as well, very gettable. And when I watch Van Dyke, I see a guy with a huge arm who's very accurate when he knows where he needs to go with the ball. But it's got like it's got to be schemed up for him. I mean, like he does not anticipate throws very well for the most part. And uh, I'm curious just how disciplined North Carolina can be on the back end. Yeah, best uh, best defensive back right now is the East Tennessee State transfer Elijah Huzzy, who's having a good season. But you know that personnel has undergone a lot of uh, undergone a lot in terms of turnover from last year in ways that are like good because last year's pass defense was so awful. But also, you're not. It, I think that the strength for 
North Carolina's defense and the reason why year two Gene Chizik, bend but don't break, yada, yada. I think the reason that it works is because Desmond Evans has, has grown up, because Miles Murphy has grown up, because um, Rucker is good. Gaynor has been playing well this season. They've got defensive linemen that I do think, even though that Miami's offensive line, I agree with you, bud, is the best one that they face so far. When you get in those third and long scenarios and those guys are able to tee off a little bit, they have been doing a pretty good job of coming up with those big plays. And that's that's to me where the the game is gonna is gonna be decided is when you do a good enough job to force Tyler Van Dyke and these Miami wide receivers to beat you, are you going to win those plays? Or, or are you gonna have a coverage bust and give up a long play? Are you gonna have a dumb penalty that ends up extending a drive? Like this is where all of the external can North Carolina handle the moment stuff comes into play because there are places in this matchup where I, I do think North Carolina can find some wins, even against some of Miami's strengths. On the flip side, I, I think the world of Lance Gidry, like the Miami's D coordinator hire, they, they have a lot of like different blitz packages. They, they, they hit A&M with a lot of corner cat stuff. It was, it was really good plan. I tried to like, go through my, my notes and look at when they've played air raid offenses, teams that really spread you out. And there had been many, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Like there's not a big sample set of him defending this stuff. But the last two years at Marshall, starting with last year, uh, Notre Dame, certainly not. Bowling Green, no. Uh, Troy, no. Gardner-Webb, no. Louisiana, no. James Madison, not really. Coastal is spread option. Old Dominion, uh, not at that time last year. App, no. Georgia Southern, yes. They held him to like 390 yards and actually 10 points, 23 to 10 in uh, in Statesboro. So that, that was a good one for him. Uh, Georgia State is you know more spread option. And then they got UConn in the bowl game, which they don't really even play offense. Now, back to the, like last year, or 2021 rather. Navy, no. East Carolina, yeah. With uh, um, who was the, the big lefty they had? They chucked it all over the yard. Oh, no. All the time. Holton yeah. Ailes. Yeah. ECU put 42 on Marshall on, on this defense. Uh, then they played at middle middles, pretty classic, like air raid, spread it out tempo type team. Middle beat them. Middle scored 34 uh, old dominion. No North Texas. Uh, yeah. They beat North Texas 49, 21. And it was a bad North Texas team, but you still ha- held the offense to 21 FIU and FAU. No UAB. No Charlotte. No. And then this one Western, which is very classic air raid, which is, similar in some ways to what North Carolina is running. Western 53, Marshall 21. So like three out of the four that I could really find, they seem to have had a lot of success against Marshall's defense uh, when Guidry was running it. But I don't know, like that's not enough sample for me to really read into it. It's just interesting. Um, If Carolina can block it up up front, I do think you can throw on Miami's corners. And Drake like Miami also has like seven players on the defensive line who are going to win one-on-one battles against North Carolina's offensive line. The, the mm-hmm. if's doing a lot of work there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Let's. Y'all, y'all, y'all got time? Can we do uh, Oregon State UCLA? I suppose. Um, I'm really just the disrespect that we're showing for the Big Ten West Division Thank title you. potentially Thank is, Thank is unbelievable. <laughs> The uh, Iowa Wisconsin game. All right, Danny. 35 and a half. <laughs> Boy, you go her direction. What do you think? What do you think Fat Joe has to do? Fat Joe Milton <laughs> lean back. <laughs> Taking <Chicken> Hill. <laughs> Come on. 
<laughs> he's listed at 258. There's yeah, no chance listed. he's seen lower than 270 in two I, uh, I've, I've got a, a sick admission. I, while I'm, um, at the end of the night, you know, you come off the show, you're so jacked. Like I listen to the, uh, the podcast that we just recorded while I'm like trying to wind down for the night and fat Joe Milton made me laugh so hard. I think I woke up my entire house. <laughs> it was incredible stuff. Um, all right. Oregon state UCLA. How does, how does Dante Moore handle Corvallis? Right. I mean, this is a, this is a tough ask for a talented quarterback who's had kind of an up and down uh, season so far for the Bruins. DJU hadn't exactly been lighting it up either. Like I, I think this the Corvallis thing is interesting, but I think the the matchup here is can Oregon State run the football versus UCLA's defense, which to which me is, is the story of UCLA's season so far. I agree. It's the best defense in the Pac-12. Ooh, I like that. Tate. With with, I, with, yeah. with Utah's injuries taken into consideration, obviously. Like I think he, like healthy Utah probably, but they're not, those guys aren't on the field anymore. Yeah, I haven't I haven't finalized the ballot yet, but I mentioned it earlier in the show. Our midseason All American team, I might have three UCLA defenders on my first team defense. They've been that good, oh, but it is it it's going to be interesting. Like DJU as the battering ram into this UCLA defense because I do feel like that's going to be the game plan. You know, another true freshman lit these guys up last week. Cal's third stringer Mendoza, he started the game. Cal scored forty. They had like almost five hundred yards offense. They ran for 240 and threw for like 240. It, it, Oregon State's defense has got problem, guys. They're they're not nearly as good as they were. As good as they were last year? Yes. Like, yeah, I think there's a noticeable downturn in, in defensive quality for Oregon State this year. And I do think that makes it an interesting matchup, too, the other way, because like I think Oregon State's defense is struggling more against the run and UCLA's offense while – Passing-wise, I don't think it's great. It's been, we've seen it on the road. It's really struggled. But I do think they can run the ball pretty effectively on the road. So it's, it is. It's really it's, it's your typical Pac-12 battle. Who can run the ball better? <laughs> I mean, because that's really what this will probably come down to. I think Every game we've talked about today has been like two and a half, three, three and a half point home favorite, uh-huh. which, which why is I don't feel great about any of them because no one knows anything. It's like, up oh, the home team, give them the edge. They're really great matchups. I know. And this is it it feels like a big uh like questions will be answered this Saturday. Like we'll we'll learn so much. And even if they might be misleading information, the impact, like what a Miami win or a North Carolina win would mean for each one of those teams. What like UCLA going into Corvallis and getting a win, what that would mean uh for the Bruins as they continue to march forward and try to join that picture. I mean, it's Midterm Saturday. Midterm Saturday. Did you know? Did you, I, I think you guys might have talked about. It. I wanted to hit it before it possibly isn't a scenario. The three-way tie of three undefeateds in the ACC. I've already figured it out. Do you know the the last one? Oh, it's the draw at the commissioner's yeah. office. Is that Jim Phillips like drawn out of a hat? Here you go. Here's so like that the, scene from Friday Night Lights where they're at the car dealership and they flip the coin. <laughs> word from the league office, as I understand it is we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, what I'm interested about is the tiebreaker right before it, which is the win percentage of your conference opponents. And that's where Louisville loses. Louisville yeah. finishes undefeated because they have a soft schedule. 
And Louisville then takes that soft schedule down to tiebreaker number five, and that ends up falling short because Florida State plays Clemson and North Carolina plays Clemson. And I think that that is going to be sort of the deal breaker right there is that, oh, and they both play Duke. They both play Duke. They both play Clemson. Florida State and North Carolina, if they go undefeated in ACC play and Louisville goes undefeated in ACC play, based on the way things are heading, I think that Florida State and North Carolina will have a better combined record of their conference opponents than Louisville will. And these are rules we need to familiarize ourselves with because, well, I don't think it's going to happen this year in the ACC. Once we go to the 18 and 16 team leagues where everybody's not playing each other anymore, it's going to be happening a lot more often. Dude, I was saying, let's get rid of the conference championship games. If we expand the playoff and all these leagues have 18 teams, let yeah, we don't, we don't want to have the scenarios of the team that all of a sudden is been like we already have had the I was sitting at home Ohio State we've already had the Alabama I was sitting at home on conference championship Saturday and because somebody else lost now I'm into the college football playoff that is going to happen more with a 12 team bracket and 18 team conferences I know that there's still a great television deal you know the conference championship games but if that that is something that I was looking at with this ACC thing is I don't think we need conference championship games anymore. I love the question from Tripp. He's he's speaking my language right now. If that scenario unfolded, Louisville gets left out of the ACC championship game, but they're sitting there with wins over the Big Ten and wins over the SEC, powerhouses at that over Indiana and uh, Kentucky. <laughs> they're in, right? Undefeated ACC team? Easily, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of us think it happens, but right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's but the <laughs> the commissioner draw does sound hilarious, but also before that is uh, sports source analytics determines who's better. So, like, right. if the analytics company also says that they're all tied perfectly, then all of a sudden you get to the commissioner draw. And if sports source analytics would like to be the analytics provider for other conferences in the future, it's not going to let the let, let let it go to tiebreaker six in commissioner's office. They're going to pick two. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> let's use some business sense here. We can't decide. <laughs> yeah. We put all this information and we still don't know. They're going to know. It ain't going to get to Jim Phillips. The, co- the computer said shrug. 98.7. Point like it's going to be right Computer, down to the decimal. Florida State Clemson for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> We've got. <laughs> oh man. Uh, are, any other? Are, do you want to talk about Iowa Wisconsin? Uh, yeah, it's a huge game. It, and, it is. It is it, a game you of see the number that is pretty wild. Thirty-five mm-hmm. and a half. But that one and that Wisconsin's an eleven-point favorite, eleven and a half point favorite. That's pretty wild too. I mean, what, what's the what's the implied there? Uh, nineteen plus five, so like 24 20, 13? Yeah, that sounds like a correct score. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, gross, disgusting display. You're, you're getting to the point with Iowa where you really can't project an offensive touchdown. <laughs> I mean, like I guess in theory, because of the short fields, the defense creates, but they didn't complete a pass to a receiver. They tried though, and you documented it on Monday. Yeah, they tried six mm-hmm. different yeah. times. They they should have had one completion. Like the kid, the the, the ball hits the kid right in the hands. It pops. Yeah. It pops up and goes for a pick. But the other, the other six were not competitive throws. <laughs> Danny, have you watched them? Yeah, there was some. The the misses were like wild thing yeah. in major league. Like just yeah, he, he throws outside. helicopters. <laughs> wild. Things. 
Every pass looks like a helicopter rotary blade flimming around. It's like it is terrible. Yeah, the lack of, of anything resembling a spiral is concerning uh, in some ways if you're trying to play. They we're analyzing quarterbacks five. at the power five level. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I went, I was talking about like early downs with Texas AM earlier. You'll never believe from an EPA perspective who the worst early down offense in college football is. Can you believe that it is Iowa? Oh, wow. Nobody saw that. Come. They can't. Just- but that implies that they are better on passing downs, which I really can't believe, right? Like there's no way that Iowa is better on downs and where the defense does not have to take the They rank 130th series. on passing downs and 133rd on person. <laughs> wow. Of all FBS teams. Of all FBS. They're terrible on offense. If you're worse than Sam Houston in any offensive category, that that is probably a fireball offense. Incredible. As far as as the matchup is concerned, I don't know if Wisconsin can cover because I really don't know how many points they'll be able to score in this game because like Rutgers did a pretty damn good job of slowing the Wisconsin offense down last week. But the matchup-wise, like Iowa's defense is Iowa's defense, but it has been better against the pass this year than against the run. So if Wisconsin takes the ball out of Tanner Mordecai's hands and just kind of hands it off to Braylon Allen and leans on that, they should win this game. And it also probably limits their ability to turn the ball over, which is something like, as you mentioned, but Iowa will be completely dependent on in this matchup to win the game. So Noah Shannon, the Iowa defensive lineman, has been cleared to practice with the team. Is he going to be able to play in this game? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they would word it like that. Right. They would. They would have said cleared for Wisconsin. They wouldn't mm-hmm. have said cleared to yeah. practice. Maybe they're hoping for an appeal to go through or something, but I, I wouldn't anticipate it. Famously quick moving appeals process mm-hmm. that yeah. has always worked out. We should hear by twenty twenty seven. Yeah. So let's say uh, Shannon eligible to play. Uh, sitting at plus three hundred. Go bet it. <laughs> I'd go 500, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe. We are going to be back Thursday, 11 a.m. Eastern time because it's the best time of the week when we give you our locks. So come and hang out. Watch us live because we move lines. And you can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow him at Danny Cano. You can follow him at Elliott 3 You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.